I, I know that uh, at the uh, American Pavilion in Moscow a few years ago, George Nelson, the designer, and you both were there with colleagues and uh, the exhibitions and your films were there. React your observations of the people there, of, of uh, their reactions to your works. This, this was, uh, uh, this actually, the, the exhibition was the first American statement, I think, that had gone into to Moscow, oh, for all intents and purposes, really the first statement since the, the revolution. And that was the, it was the year of the famous the time of the famous kitchen debates, as this sort of, with uh, between Khrushchev, Khrushchev and Nixon, Nixon at the time, and uh, it took th those took place in a an exhibition that that George Nelson created it was a sort of exhibition made up of essentially of a, of American products and sort of the fruits of our own society, and uh, we had done what was a seven screen seven. Per projection film, which acted as the introduction to the whole thing, for so that they came in the Russians and and they they came in in droves. In six weeks, we showed to four million Russians, which was an awful awful lot of people. And uh, the six weeks of showing was one thing, but we were also there for four weeks of preparation, which we worked in Moscow. And uh, uh, we we lived in the Russian hotels, and we had the advantage during that time of being it, it, the uh, inter-tourists, the uh, the uh, in-tourist guides of the uh, that the Russian setup had just started to take place. But we were free from that because we were actually working. We were free to uh, free from the guided tour. Yes, freed from the guided tour, and we were. We actually we traveled by bus and uh, underground and cab back and forth. And we were sort of on our own and very often walked. And we had to walk through uh, the poor sections of of Moscow. Oh, sometimes late at night, way into the middle of the night. It was a, it was an interesting thing over a long period of of time. What were your ob any uh, memories that stick with you? Any observations uh, yeah, that stick with you? reactions of people to toward your work, toward the pavilion? Well, of course, this was a little bit er earlier in the... It was early in the the, the uh, time of Russian tourism, so I don't know... I haven't been there recently. I don't know how people were there. At that point, they were very, you know, where do you go where you walk down the main street and some little old lady fixes your collar and things like that, and where do you go when... The, p the bus the man on the bus refuses to take your fare because you're a guest of the country, or they lead you to the head of the line, and and for that matter, where do you go? And certainly not in these United States, where no matter what restaurant you walk in, you get the greatest bread that you can imagine, <laughs> you know. And uh, I must I must confess at this point my, that my my the 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 standards by which I judge the level, cultural level of a country, or for the most part, more by the quality of the bread that you can get in a restaurant than you can in the, necessarily the quality of the opera or the symphony. And, uh, you know, at at that rate, we have to start <laughs> do some work. Although we're improving. Our breads, as a rule, have improved, I think, over the last five years. It's interesting how Eames sticks to fundamentals here. 
the bread. I'm asking about other things. The pavilion, he's talking about the bread, and you, of course you're probably right. One of the, one of the, <laughs> the things that the, that, that the Russians, and I had a discussion in the Russian embassy, we were talking, it's when I had been planning to go back, I was talking to the cultural attaché, and he was talking about the time I had spent in, in, in Russia, and I, among things, congratulated him on his ice cream, because the, the morangene, the Russian ice cream is marvelous. It's just very good. It's, it's, it's sort of comparable to the best quality ice cream you can buy here. That is, the ice cream you buy on the streets in Russia is comparable to the very best. So I, I said, yes, the morangene was, was great. The, you know, between the borscht and the morangene, what could you want? And, but I said, there's one thing that bothered me about the Russian ice cream. It was so good, but I felt that, that you accomplished it in an awfully sneaky way. And the guy looked very serious at me, and I said, yes, I said, it's a, you accomplished it in a way that I can't believe that any really upstanding, civilized nation of our time would do. And gee, the guy, you know, he was, they looked at each other with this, I thought it was going to be, you know, Oosted, never again. And so I, I said, "Yes." He said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Yes." I said, "Well, you of course you made good ice cream. You used real cream and real material. I mean, in any civilized country today, you do it with plastics." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Observations of Charles Eames. We haven't asked you. I've avoided the obvious question. Our listeners are waiting for me to ask Eames about the nature of his chair, how the how this came to be. I've avoided asking you this, but I suppose respect for materials. Every uh, this I suppose this is the, the sine qua non of of Eames's life. To material, every every kind of material has its own kind of life. As I said to you, well, there's there's a way to, uh, supposed to talk about these things after the fact, and there's a ways to talk about them. Uh, and I find myself that I'm that if I talk to designers about the or students about the process of designing, I talk in a different way than one is apt to to work. Uh, uh, naturally, one forgets that at the time we did a chair, that prior to that some some great great modern chairs had been done. That is, the, uh, uh, the Mies van der Rohe chair, the sort of the, the Tugendhat chair, the Barcelona chair, the uh, Mies, uh, uh, Marcel Breuer had done a marvelous chair sort of in the Bauhaus. But more directly related were the things that, uh, that uh, Alto, Alver Alto, the Finnish architect, had done uh, in the early 30s, I suppose, the late 20s and the early 30s, he'd done this with, with uh, wood. Now, viewed against that background and at the moment, why we were doing what was just, just the logical thing to do. Now, the fact that, uh, that sort of no one else was happening to do this probably, but we were, we were doing it in, in a fairly direct, uh, direct way and, uh, but with a different sort of set of tools, with a different kind of I, sort of little slightly different idea, but in in fact we were probably more conscious of the goals and stated them more definitely to ourselves than I would probably do it now. It was kind of a function of youth, I suppose, because we 
sort of set out set out to to not sort of solve the way people should sit, but solve the problem of the way people do sit. You know, because solving the problem of the way people should sit, at least we were aware, it was another order of thing, another magnitude. Maybe they shouldn't sit at all. Maybe they should sort of lean against things. Maybe they should be supported pneumatically or by anti-grav machines. Maybe this is the way it is. But our problem was much more restricted. It was to solve the problem of how people do sit, to solve it with a non-resilient material, and to sort of make whatever it, whatever it turned out to be visually to be compatible and a part of and, in, and inherent in the way it was made. Now, this was sort of a fairly narrow accomplishment, and, and uh, so this was sort of the beginnings of the, the molded plywood chair. We worked and worked, and by the way, it wasn't a question of just designing it. We, we, we not only developed the technique by which it was made, the method, we built all the original tools in our own own office. We developed that whole shock mount. We, we actually compounded the rubber, cured the rubber in our office, and uh, finally, uh, even when it went into production in our own office, because no one had ever made it, we made the first 5,000 production pieces. And so this is then had continued to... Now this leads service. to about three questions, listening to you. One Quite obviously, this is key. It's Eames and his colleagues. From beginning to end, it was yours. It was Your imprint was on it. There was no doubt of it. It wasn't a question of it being done by specialists, each one doing a different part. It was, right, your vision from beginning to end. This is one, isn't it? We, remember we talked you're, about... You're continuity. making it seem a little more dramatic. No, but it's true, was. because <laughs> also you mentioned continuity. One man to the end, but you also spoke of the fact of the other chairs, of the other guys, of the architects and the mines. This comes back to India again. It's funny, string also relates. This big problem we have today of connecting with past, even recent and as well as ancient, connecting at the same time going ahead. This interesting paradox of man finds himself, even individual lives. I mean, you're, you do this individually. And in, in a sense, this this may be a personal parable too. Uh, yes, and actually, I, I don't I never think of particularly doing it individually uh, because parallel at the same time. Remember, there Aero, with whom we I sort of had been working earlier, Aero Saren, and had then gone off sort of on another parallel uh, tangent. Aero is uh, oh, I fiddle around with details fairly much. Aero was more of a concept guy, and so as a result, you had many of his things which were terribly strong in, in concept, but they were, they were paralleling. The, the womb chair, for example, of Aero's, this was a chair which, in detail, it had sort of many things that uh, naturally I beat him over the head with as far as details were concerned, but on the other side, it was one great, it was a great concept. And even his notion of the the pedestal chair was a sort of a concept. It was a it was a, an idea. So this was this sort of was paralleling. See, Aero was a, an architect, and and, and many archi and I I was started uh, out practicing architecture too. I was an architect, but many architects sort of find it 
more than a convenience or a pleasure to do furniture. They find in furniture, and I suspect this is why Mies van der Rohe and many others have done it, Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, in a, in a chair, they get an opportunity to do a piece of architecture in miniature. And it's not so much that it's in miniature, it's that, that a chair at least approaches the human scale. In a building where an architect almost loses control for at a vital moment when it goes out and it becomes in so many hands, the scale of it is so great that he can't really control it. And I suspect that in doing a chair for that instant, he is almost able to control a piece of architecture. He finds out that he really can't quite do it, but then on the other hand, it's an approach to it. And I, I think that this is why, you know, Aero had seen us sort of off doing ch chairs, and this, you know, this uh, he couldn't stand that, and he had to, had to do some too. And it wasn't just in sense of competition, but he had to. This was a kind of architecture. But the fact that that's interesting. The chair is a a building in miniature or a work of art, uh, uh, a work of architecture. In, at least he can, he, something he thinks he can control beginning at the end. human a vision scale. Beginning now this is uh, uh, Alexander Girard, who is first also architect, is has sort of tended now more towards design at the human scale. He too does. This is Alto, of course, was an architect. You always said something about when you designed your chair, that it was the way people sit. So Again, you're not moralizing here. I mean, well, if I were to yeah. stop and, and sort of contemplate on how people should sit, it would be an entirely yeah. different problem. All I meant to in, in emphasizing that was to point out that we were missing something, but at least we knew we were missing it. But as you were doing that, you also said something else, that you go beyond, you ask what the scientist Pernofsky calls an impertinent question. Maybe people shouldn't be sitting at all. You Was this the dumb Pernofsky or the bright Pernofsky? Pernofsky, the J. Pernofsky. <laughs> oh, oh, Pernofsky. Pernofsky. Right, no, no, I was thinking the Pernofskys, the two brothers, they, they, okay. one, they were terribly brilliant, and one was, the, the one that was second in his class was referred to as the oh, dumb one. No, Bernofsky, Bernofsky is, no, a, a great guy. Yes, he, he says a marvelous thing. He he says in the sort of that the essence of whether it's the arts or science sort of is in that, that ability to add a moment, see in two things seemingly entirely different that which is like, alike in the two, that is the... The, 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 the variety and similarities in the... The similarity yeah, the in things which are... Uh, every, yeah. I think at the moment he was referring to Newton's seeing in the falling of the apple the same principle as the things that held the planets in their we orbits. Also, we also refer to something of which you obviously are to me a very dramatic example, the leap of the imagination. He yes, says yes, in yes, science yes. as well as in art, the leap of the imagination, that there's a poetry involved. When you said maybe this isn't, maybe people shouldn't be sitting, you see. You think maybe there is another way, but you were at the time designing something people are doing and experiencing at the moment. Now, do you think in the other way, too? Are you still thinking about the other matter? Maybe people shouldn't be sitting? I mean, do you still think in those? Well, if I think here? about it, I think about it. I don't, uh, you know, I don't have... No, I mean, are you doing anything about it? I wake out in a <laughs> cold sweat <laughs> thinking about it. But, I mean, uh, I, I, is something going on? I'm probing, of course. But I mean, is, is something, since you have so many... No, I must, I must say, we are doing some things in, in, in seating. Uh, I... Uh, in that area, I, I expect that our sort of greatest desire is to try to help in consolidate the art a little bit 
in other words, not so much working on concepts as to taking those things upon which we have worked and trying to make them <laughs> make them turn out to be worthwhile. You know that there are certain there are certain housekeeping details that is prim that of premature shoddiness, cost, the way things last, the way they things serve in that area. And I suppose in terms of of any concepts or ideas, it's been mostly now in the areas of, of uh, communication of ideas, like the things we're doing for IBM, and uh, we've been working on, on uh, some, some ideas of, of in, in broadly in education. Yeah. I think, you know, talking to Charles, things like uh, Mercury trying to drink that cup milk and fill them in a box. It's endless. It? But perhaps two or three more uh, questions to ask him. Uh, architect, you, architect two, part, you, I just touched upon this house. Uh, you and your wife, Rames, built this house. And what was it? They were just materials? Apparently some magnificent Santa materials that could be found in any manufacturer's well, catalog. In Yes, I, I don't know where you have been tipped off to that, but on the other hand, it is true that, that we built a, a house which was built of standard parts, and uh, uh, the and, and still being of standard parts, it had uh, I guess some qualities that were not completely ordinary. It it was curious that ten years or fifteen years after the house was built at the Seattle Fair, it was shown as the house of tomorrow. You know, <laughs> which goes. I, I, it coincides with a little thing that had, it was a a woman, a, a very delightful magazine person, house magazine, shelter magazine person. We're doing some interviewing, and she brought with her a friend from Pasadena. And the friend sort of sat quietly, and during this look at the house. This was in the earlier days when the house was new and was a little bit more unique. And as she left, why this friend had, who hadn't said anything during the thing, she was being very polite and very nice, and she said, Mr. Eames, I can't thank you enough for allowing me to come and visit your house. She said, the only thing is, I don't know how I'll ever be able to go back to contemporary, which... Well, I suppose the element of Charles fantasy and imagination are, are not irrelevant here in the, in the use of standard materials in this house. One last question. Toys, too. That Eames toy. Uh, we hear so much about war toys today, and earlier you have a sort of view that man will make it. You think we will. Yet there are more war toys, or am I wrong? What are your toys? How do you, how do you compete with war toys, or the nature of your toys? Well, it's pretty tough to compete with blood and thunder. You know, you can't do that. It's, you can't hardly beat that. But, uh, by the way, the, in, in Russia, one of the things in the toy stores, we, we noticed that, uh, that, there, that there were, and this was, uh, whatever it was, it's been six or seven years ago, that there were no war toys of any kind in the Russian toy store. And, and finally, I got up enough courage to ask the girl, you know, don't you have any guns on things? And, boy, she was shocked and said, you mean to tell me you think that's something that children should play with, and et cetera, et cetera? And I had 
seen some uh, some what I thought were soldiers, but they were really just replicas of the guards from Lenin's tomb, and they weren't soldiers at all. Now the the our venture into toys has been like we had done some things like the House of Cards and things which we had done just playing around. We wanted to be able to give some to our friends and childrens of our friends, so we had them put into uh, production and or were asked to and and uh, oh I don't know there've been several million produced. I think you can get them in Europe. I don't believe you can get them here. Well, I'm sure that's what I was about to ask. I'm sure that many of the listeners, uh, the phone will be ringing, I'm sure, after this. Where can we get Eames toys? Well, <laughs> uh, you can, uh, I know a place in, in London or Frankfurt, <laughs> but I don't, but not in Chicago. Charles <coughs> Eames, wh- where, what next? I mean, uh, you said you were implying that communications primarily uh, right now is a films and education. This is your uh, avenue right now. It uh, it's, it seems seems to be at least it, it keeps us. We're we're opening a, uh, a an exhibition on the life of of Nehru in in Washington later this uh, this month. It was to be the fifteenth, but it seems that the boat sunk on the way or something, and we've spent some time rehabilitating the the exhibition. Charles Eames, how do we describe him? Architect, designer. I think the beginning phrase, as someone called you, perhaps the most brilliant overall designer in America, but more than that, obviously, educator and uh, observer of the scene. Come on, Let's call this chapter there, one. There aren't many 19th century people <laughs> around anymore. That's <laughs> the only reason. Let's go back to the 19th century and still remain in the 20th, and apparently, and look at the 21st as the way is Eames' his mission apparently is accomplishing it, too. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Mr.